Congratulations to our East congregation. I can't believe that it's already been an entire year. And what a year it was, right? We started out, we had to pause because of COVID, but I'm so proud of the way the East congregation, you came back together. First of all, you stayed together during the COVID lockdown. You stayed connected to one another. And then when it was time to relaunch, you came back with great enthusiasm, with joy, and I'm so proud of God's work that's happening in the East Congregation, and I'm so proud of the way you have served and the way you have been a blessing to our city. So again, congratulations on one year as the East Congregation. God bless all of you. Amen and amen to that. New Life East, uh, it really has been a joy to be in the journey with you this past year. I was thinking as we were preparing for this service, thinking about our first birthday, I was thinking about the two very clear words that the Lord spoke to us about this community. One, that this would be a community where the great shepherd gathers up sheep that have been lost. And I don't know if you know this, but this is not just kind of an outpost of New Life Church, but this has become genuinely a church for the east side of the city. Every single week I look out, I see more and more faces that are brand new faces that the Lord Jesus has gathered up into this place. And so I'm saying in my heart, I'm saying thanks be to God for that. The second big word that the Lord spoke to us about this community was that this would be a spiritual oasis for people, a place of refreshing, a, a place where people could come where their souls, when their souls were weary, they could drink deeply of the water of life and be refreshed and cleansed. And this community has become that. And I'm saying thanks be to God for that. And I'm also saying thanks be to God for all of you who have... Um, all of you who have given your strength to the effort of this community and to making this happen, uh, you are creating every single week. You're creating a space where the great shepherd of the sheep can gather up his sheep and where the streams of living water can flow. And so thank you for that. Would you give yourselves a hand for that? We say thanks be to God for that. And I also, I was thinking this week, um, I've been reading through 2 Corinthians in my devotional time. And the Apostle Paul says, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you to show that our ministry is valid? He says, no, we don't need anything external to prove the validity of our ministry. But he says, this is what we have. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. And one of the beautiful things that's happening in this community is that for us as a staff and a leadership team, the Lord is writing you on our hearts, and we love you, and we pray for you, and we're so grateful to be able to share the journey and the story with you. And so thanks for letting us into your life. It's been a privilege and an honor and a joy. Okay, we're in the Minor Prophets this morning. The series is called The Everyday Prophets, as we know, and so we started with Hosea, and then Joel, and then after Joel you have, you remember it? Amos, and then you have Obadiah, and then Jonah, and then Micah. And I'm not preaching on Jonah this morning. Do you know why? Because we did it four times last year, okay? So, and Jonah's a great guy, and we love the book of Jonah, and we think it's fabulous. But I laid down four pretty good sermons on Jonah last year, and then the other preachers and teachers at New Life, they also did four messages on Jonah. And so between a lot of us, I think we got like 30 or so Jonah sermons on file. So that means that we get a free pass on preaching Jonah really from now until Jesus comes back. Or at least the next four times we go through a series on the minor prophets, we get to skip right by Jonah. So I'm going to be in the book of Micah this morning, starting in Micah chapter 1. Micah, if you don't know, a little historical context for him. Uh, Micah 
prophesied somewhere in the middle of the 8th century BC, sort of the uh, middle part to the second half of it, kind of is where Micah is situated historically. He was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, who prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was also a contemporary of Isaiah, who prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. And what's fascinating, actually, scholars will speculate that um, the prophets, uh, we know this actually from the scriptures, that the prophets kind of moved about in schools or bands with each other. Um, They were together. They did their prophesying together. And so Micah really has studied at the feet of some of these great prophets like Hosea and Amos, and particularly Isaiah. Some of you that are longtime readers of scripture have probably noticed that there are things that Micah says that directly mirror things that Isaiah says. So some scholars actually think that Micah might have actually been a disciple of Isaiah. And so what he's done is he's soaked in the vision of Isaiah, and then he's bringing a fresh word from the Lord to the people of God out of what he's learned from Isaiah, which I think is fascinating and wonderful. His name, the name Micah, means who is like Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh. And in fact, he ends the book by saying, who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of your inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Uh, Micah sees this vision of a merciful God that I think is a word for us in our day. And so, Lord, we lift up our hearts to you. We lift up our hearts to you. We make our thoughts known to you, almighty God, before whom all hearts are known and no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, we pray, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Grant that, we're asking. We ask that you would pick up the words of the prophet Micah, and you would make them a word of the living God for us in this moment. Speak to us exactly where we're at. Help us hear exactly what we need to hear to be more fully your people, to live more fully in the kingdom. Grant that we're asking. And as always, I say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So even though Micah is prophesying from the south, his prophecy includes both Israel, Samaria in the north, and Judah in the south. So it's a word for the whole People of God, hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, Micah says, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All of this is because of Jacob's transgression because of the sins of the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So Micah sees this vision of the Lord beginning to confront all the peoples of the earth, but specifically his own people. And what he sees is a vision of the Lord at the top of the mountain in the same way that Moses met with God on the top of the mountain. Okay, Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, the Lord's fiery presence up there, God speaks to Moses, gives him the Ten Commandments, his laws, and his instructions for Israel. But you might remember in Exodus that the people 
stayed at a distance, the Lord's fiery presence remained at the top of the mountain, right? But here in Micah, we have a different scenario. That fiery presence at the top of the mountain now begins to race down the mountain. Micah says that the mountains actually melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope in response to what he sees happening among his people. The question then becomes, what is it that the Lord sees happening among his people? And Micah is very specific about it. Micah chapter 3 and verse 8. Micah says, as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and with might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sins. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. So you leaders, you rulers. Who's he talking to first of all here? He's talking to those that are in charge of Israel, those that have been entrusted with the lives and the care of other people. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. You are the ones who despise justice and you distort all that is right. You build Zion with bloodshed. So you're not building up Zion with justice and with righteousness like God wanted you to do, but instead you're making this place great through bloodshed, through unrighteousness. You're building up Jerusalem with wickedness Her leaders judge for a bribe. So justice is really getting perverted, isn't it? When you can pay the judge to make a decision that's in your favor, we've got a real problem on our hands, don't we? Yeah, we do. And so your leaders uh, judge for a bribe, and the priests teach for a price, and her prophets are telling fortunes for money. And yet, they look to the Lord's support, and they say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Micah says, Zion will be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble, the Temple Hill mound overgrown with thickets. So if we had to say, just right out of the gate, what the problem is that Micah is addressing in Israel and in Judah, what he sees is that the leaders, not just political leaders, but also religious leaders, are taking advantage of those who have been entrusted to their care, okay? They're being paid for decisions, and they're giving decisions not in accordance with what's right, but in accordance with what's convenient, okay, for them. And those people that are prophesying, the religious leaders that are leading among them, they're leading in a way that's not reflective of the righteousness and the justice of God. So they're taking advantage of those who are underneath their care. Now, if this was the only thing that was happening in Israel and in Judah, it would be bad enough. But Micah actually sees that the problem does not just remain at the level of leadership. But for Micah, the problem has actually dropped down into God's people. It's become endemic among God's people. Now, we have been in a global pandemic the last year, so that is a disease that encompasses the globe. But endemic is what happens when a community all of a sudden is captured by something. A virus has set in. And this is what Micah sees. Micah chapter 7, look down at the text. Micah says, what misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone, everybody say everyone. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. Evil. The ruler demands gifts. So here are the leaders again. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Now listen to what he says. Don't trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a 
Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, and a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the members of his own household. So it's not just that the leaders are taking advantage of the people, but the people are taking advantage of one another. This is bad. (laughs) This is bad. (laughs) It's a distortion of the very reason for which God delivered his people up out of Egypt. Israel has become a predatory environment. And the reason that this is problematic is because it directly contravenes why God delivered and formed a people in the first place. A little bit more text of Scripture for you to set Micah's words in biblical context. This is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Why were the people of God in misery in Egypt? Because somebody was taking advantage of them, right? And this like provokes God's ire. It provokes God's outrage. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am, what's the word there? Now think about that, brothers and sisters. That God is concerned about us. What touches us touches him, okay? When we are being mistreated, God doesn't just stand up in some timeless eternity and contemplate it from afar, but God actually feels it. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I am concerned, he says, about their suffering. God's heart is moved by human misfortune. Can I get an amen? So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of all these people named Ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. So here the people of God were being oppressed. And what did God do? He rescued them. He rose up on their behalf. His tender pity, his compassion, his mercy went into motion and delivered them up out of Egypt. But God's intention for his people is not just that the mercy would stop with them, but that the mercy that saves them, the mercy that delivers them, would take up residence in them so that they become a people of mercy, a people of pity, a people of tenderness, a people of compassion, one for another. Which is why you get this in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 21. The Lord says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you also were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, should the day ever come along when you run into somebody that you could take advantage of and it would make your life better by taking advantage of them, you'd better just stop for a second and remember my history with you, your history with me. Remember when you were being oppressed in Egypt. Remember when you were being mistreated. Remember when you were being taken advantage of and my tenderness, my compassion went into motion for you. You'd better let my tender compassion for you just check you right there on the way that you're thinking about these people. Don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, 
I will certainly hear their cry, my anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. In other words, the same strength of my arm that went into motion for you to deliver you, if you set yourself against my compassion and my goodness for these people, you will find yourself swept away like Egypt was swept away. Are you tracking with me this morning, brothers and sisters? Because that cloak, if you lend money to one of my people among you who's needy, don't treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is their only covering that they have. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will what? Because I am compassionate. This is our God. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, the God who always looks after the orphan and the alien and the fatherless and the widow, always looking out for people who are being mistreated. And so his urgency to his people. It's like, I delivered you up out of Egypt, so do not under any circumstances become Egypt for one another. Don't take advantage of each other. Do not leverage your power to mistreat each other or put each other down. Do not leverage your agency to fracture the community in any way because if you do, you will suffer the same fate that Egypt suffered. Micah 3.12, Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Guys, God is fanatical about the way that we treat each other. He's fanatical about it. How we treat each other is a direct reflection of what we think about how he treats us. What I want to say to you this morning is that how we treat each other, I'll put it like this, how we treat each other, especially the most vulnerable among us, says everything. Everybody say everything. It says everything about what we think God is like and what we think the world is is therefore really like. How we treat each other, especially the most vulnerable, says everything about what we think God is really like. The scriptures teach this uniformly from cover to cover. This is what they teach. That it doesn't matter what you say that you believe about God. Okay? The truest index of what you really believe about God is how you treat the people who are around you, especially those who have less power or less agency than you, which is why it's so critical for us always to keep an appropriate vision of God before our minds and before our hearts and to constantly let that vision of God work its way down into the innermost of our being. Are you tracking with me this morning, ladies and gentlemen? This is what God calls us to, is to seeing who He is in the right way so that we can see each other in the right way. And our God is a God of tender compassion. Our God is a God of pity. Our God is a God who looks upon those who don't have power, and he, his heart is moved by them. We have four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. Our oldest, Ethan, is uh, going to be 15 this summer. And uh, I will not soon forget, I will not ever forget, actually, the day that he was born. You remember the journey, those of you that are parents in this room, you know that journey. Nine months of pregnancy, Mandy's pregnancy was... Uh, flawless, a beautiful pregnancy. And uh, she was a couple days over her due date. And all of a sudden, she just kind of felt it, whatever that is. The things start going into motion, you know. And so we called the doctor and we said, we think we're on the cusp of something is happening here, you know. 
So the doctor had us in, and we went in on a Monday morning, and they took some tests with Mandy, and they said, yeah, it looks like you're going to have the baby pretty soon, and hopefully uh, we can get this done today. And so they got her all kind of going, and uh, Monday morning turned into Monday afternoon, uh, which turned into Monday evening, which turned into early Tuesday morning, and then Tuesday afternoon, and Ethan, Ethan, took just about a full 36 hours to be born. And um, I remember actually when the doctor held up Ethan for the first time, the first words that were ever uttered over the now delivered Ethan or the doctor looking, Ethan was like 10 pounds, huge baby. And the doctor looks at him like her eyes are like as wide as saucepans, you know, and she looks at Mandy, she looks back at Ethan, she goes, this is a huge baby. The Mandy was completely, you know, taxed by that. She had been up all night and all that. So she held Ethan for a couple minutes. And then she said, I'm tired and I'm hungry. Take this baby away from me. And um, for 14 and a half years, that's actually what Mandy's been saying to me. I'm tired and I'm hungry. Take these kids away from me. <laughs> but everything kind of quieted down there, you know. And Mandy fell asleep. Doctors cleared out of the room. And I remember holding Ethan for the first time. And you don't know what to say. All of a sudden, it's me and him. This is the beginning of our relationship, you know, and I'm holding Ethan, and I just, I remember the emotion that started to well up in me, a feeling of tenderness for Ethan, and all that I could think to do was start talking to him about us. It's like, hi, I'm your dad. <laughs> my name is Andrew, Andrew Burdenarn, that's the name my parents gave me, let me tell you about them, you know, and start talking to them about my mom and dad, and sharing with Ethan about Mandy, and how we met each other, and what our family's like and what we're hoping for, for him and for our family together. And all these stories. And as I'm telling these stories, this emotion is welling up to me, this feeling of tenderness, you know, for Ethan. And as I'm telling him these stories about our family and who we are, I remember getting to this point where I thought I need to tell him about the God that Mandy and I have come to know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God made known in the person of Jesus. And I start telling the story of salvation to him, creation and redemption and all that God desires for him. And I remember something about that. I don't know what it was. But something about that just like the dam burst for me. And all of a sudden now over Ethan, the tenderness that I felt for him, I am weeping over Ethan. And as I'm holding him in my arms and praying over him, I remember clearing out, you know, wiping the tears off my cheeks with my thumb, just like this. And I made the sign of the cross with my tears on his forehead and dedicated him to Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, seal him up in your kingdom, oh God. And I remember that that emotion... That emotion of tenderness caught me so off guard. And uh, ten and a half months later, Gabe came into the world. Now, we don't recommend that. <laughs> Having kids, we recommend. Ten and a half months, not so much. But Gabe. And I do remember, I've told this story before, but I remember when Gabe was getting ready to come into the world, I was very concerned because I felt so much love for Ethan, that emotion that I felt in that moment, the tenderness for him. I remember thinking, I don't... Am I going to be able to duplicate this for another kid? Do we have to like cut the pie, the parent love, the dad love pie in half? And now Gabe gets half and Ethan gets half. And it wasn't the case. I remember holding Gabe and it was the same kind of deal. All of a sudden this uprising of compassion, tenderness in my heart and the dam burst and the whole thing. And then two years later, Bella wandered into our lives. And that was a beautiful experience and the same kind of thing with Bella. And actually the profound moment that I had when Bella came into the world is that Mandy and Bella were at the hospital. I went back to the house to take care of Ethan and Gabe. We were just two little bebops at the time, you know. 
And I took him to McDonald's and got some chicken nuggets and french fries. And we had a sweet night together. And we played and watched a TV show. And I bathed their little naked bodies and got them in their jammies, you know, and tucked them in for the night. And I remember just I loved them so much and was so desperate to see in a situation where now Mandy and I, you know how it is, they say that you go from like zone defense to man-to-man defense when you get like the two kids, a one parent per each. But then if you go beyond that, you really have to switch to say, and I was so concerned that Ethan and Gabe were not going to get everything that they needed from us as parents. And I was desperate before the Lord. I was just desperate. God, would you make sure that everything that they need, that you supply that lack in their lives, like be the father to them that I cannot be. And I remember tucking them in that night. And I remember praying over them the priestly blessing from the Old Testament. I pray over you when we finish our service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy. And the moment I prayed that over them, I just buckled. All of a sudden now tears are streaming down. And I didn't want to cause my boys any concerns. So I raced out of the room and turned the lights off, closed the door, you know, and fell down in the hallway and pleaded with the Lord that the Lord would take care of my boys the way that they need to be taken care of. And I remember a couple days later, after all of the dust had kind of settled on that whole thing, Mandy and Bella are back home and we're kind of getting our bearings again. I remember shooting off an email to my parents who are here this morning sitting in the back and I um, told them the whole story the last couple days and then shared that little story, that emotion, the tenderness, the longing for my kids that welled up in me. And uh, my mom wrote back to me right away, you know, I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing good and thanks so much for that. And oh, that's such a sweet story, you know, mom, love moms. Dad wrote back to me. I'll never forget this email as long as I live. Andrew, now you know, dad. (laughs) But you have those moments in your life, you know, that are like holy ground, like revelation moments for real, where your whole world tilts. And I went, wait, dad, you? And then all of a sudden, it was like I saw this unbroken string of fatherly longing that went straight up into the heavens. <laughs> that that feeling, that emotion, that tenderness began somewhere. It began in the heart of God. So that that feeling that I felt for Ethan and then for Bella and then for and Gabe. Sorry, where's Gabe? I miss Gabe. Sorry, Gabe. Ethan and then Gabe and then Bella and then Liam, that emotion that I felt for my kids, that might just be the truest emotion and the most bedrock emotion that there is in the universe. If that is the way that God feels about us, and I think that it is, and I think that this is confirmed in the teaching of Jesus, Matthew chapter 18. When Jesus, when the scripture says that at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him, and he placed a child in their midst, and he said to them, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like what? The little children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now just stop and think about that for a second. When we think about how to secure ourselves on planet Earth, what we mostly think about is getting more powerful. We mostly think about climbing up the corporate ladder, accumulating more power in some way, accumulating more money, more positions, more status, because then if I have more of these things, if I sit on the mountaintop, then I'll feel safe in life. 
And Jesus' counsel is exactly in the opposite direction. You don't become more safe in life by trying to become more safe in life. You become more safe in life by humbling yourself, by putting yourself in the position of a child with its parent. Nobody, nobody who doesn't change and become like the little children can ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. And also, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name, what? Welcomes me. The whole problem that was happening in Micah was a perversion of this. Tender compassion, vulnerability, love had evaporated from the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of, from the kingdom of Israel. It had gone away and the environment had become a predatory environment. Uh, nobody could sit down underneath one another's vine and fig tree because the moment you get close to somebody, you're afraid that they're going to take advantage of you. But that is against the heart of God. It's not true to what God is like. The God that we worship, the God that's revealed in Jesus is a God who is only ever always tender compassion all the time. George MacDonald said it so well when he said, brothers, have you found our king? There he is, kissing the little children and saying that they are like God. There he is at a table with the head of a fisherman lying on his bosom. And this is the true type, the true picture of our God beside the monstrosity of a monarch, or John, one of Jesus' best friends, put it so well in John 1.18 when he said that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is where? In the bosom of the Father. He has made him known to us. Now, would you just stop and think about that for a second? That moment that I had with Ethan, that is an icon of the deepest reality of the universe. You want to know what the bedrock thing in the universe is? The truest truth, the realest real in the universe? It is the Son of God resting his head against the Father's chest in tender love and embrace and acceptance and compassion. That is the heart of reality, brothers and sisters. In all the chaos and all of the anger, all of the taking advantage of one another that we see, those are surface disturbances of reality. The deep heart of reality is the Father and the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit and all of the tenderness that goes along with that, which is why when Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us, the only thing he is among us is tender compassion for other people. You never saw in the Gospels Jesus take advantage of anybody. Why? Because God would never take advantage of anybody, and Jesus is God. (laughs) What Jesus does when he lives and moves and walks among us is he takes broken and wayward, hurting and lost humanity. He takes the marginal, those who have been pressed to the edges, and he calls them to the center. All of those who were the most vulnerable in Israel, he lifted them up because that is what God is like. That is what God feels about us. What I felt for my kids is what God feels for us infinitely all the time for every human being. Can I get an amen? Somebody, that is what our God is like. And so the heart of the universe, I want to say to you this morning, is divine tenderness. And we are most like God when we walk in it towards each other. We're most, think about it, we're most like God when we're soft-hearted with each other. 
We're most like God when we're tender. We're most like God when we're compassionate. I was thinking this week as I was preparing this message, I was thinking once again about the events that happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, that violent mob that stormed the Capitol. And I know, I know it's been analyzed. And I know that fingers have been pointed. And I know it's been an exhausting year politically and socially and all of that. But that, just in complete candor with you, that moment to me, that moment was an apocalyptic moment. It was a moment when something was revealed that needed to be revealed. And what was revealed is not just that some group of people out there is especially angry. To me, what was revealed in that moment is that we as a people are especially angry and we have forgotten to be tender with each other. And so what we do is we feed and we fuel all of these antagonisms with one another. And then every once in a while, they break out dramatically in moments like that. But it's not enough for us just to point the finger at those people out there and go, you know, if they would just kind of shape up and get better, everything would... No. The moment that's upon us is a moment of self-examination. Where and in what ways have we failed to be tender with one another? Wherever we've failed to be tender with each other, we've cultivated then in our lives the kind of thing that will eventually metastasize in those moments. And I remember that moment on January the 6th, the violent mob storming the Capitol. One of the things that to me was so ironic about that moment was all of the people that were holding up the signs that said Jesus saves and carrying crosses to that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, not only is that an irony, but it's actually a beautiful saving irony. That the very thing that God wants to save us from is that. And all the things that make that possible, the pollution and the sickness of our souls that makes us treat one another like enemies, Jesus Christ came among us to save us from specifically that thing. And you don't know our God at all until you understand that he's the God that actually does climb into that anger, breaking it from the inside out. Which is why Micah says that Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. Do you know why it will be that? Because God, in his tender mercy and compassion, has decided to climb inside of that, to break the power of it, so as to build his people up in a way that reflects his compassionate tenderness, his righteousness and justice in the world. Are you with me this morning, people of God? He's come to save us specifically from that. This is where the story is headed, by the way. The whole story of Scripture, the whole story of our faith, the story of the cosmos, the story of, the, of, the, of human history, it's headed towards a moment when God's compassion, His tender love, will be all and will be in all. That's where it's going. And Micah knows it, which is why he says this in Micah chapter 4, that in the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations. Do you see this? Judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Watch this in verse 4. What is the immediate impact of people coming into an intimate knowledge of the Lord? Micah says it's this, that they will beat their what? Into their, into nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any 
more. What happens when we have an encounter with the living God who is made manifest in Jesus is that the tender compassion that always existed in his heart transforms our very lives so that the tools and the weapons that we once used to divide up humanity all of a sudden became, become means of building community. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? It's not complicated stuff. It's simple. Micah says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's simple stuff. Act justly. Love mercy. Or another translation says kindness. Think about it. Act justly. Learn to fall in love with kindness. And walk humbly with your God. This is how God saves the world. By forming a people for himself who do this very thing. This is a matter, by the way, of spiritual discipline. It's a matter of us training ourselves in a new way of seeing, in a new way of being. It's a matter of us daily surrendering our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit who tenderizes us one for another. I started my job here at New Life Church a little over three and a half years ago, and with this we'll start going to communion. A little over three and a half years ago, June 1st, 2017, I was up at the New Life North offices, unpacking my office, sending up my books, and I got a call from Daniel Grothy when I first came on staff here. I worked with the Friday night team, associate pastor with Friday night. I got a call from Daniel, hey, how's, how's it going? How's the setup going? And it's going great. I said, what are you up to? He said, I'm on my way to a hospital visitation. Guy in our congregation is dying of cancer. I'm going there to pray over him. I said, well, can I come with you? He goes, oh, absolutely, meet me there. And so I jumped in my Jeep and I drove over to St. Francis Hospital here and Kevin Cagle was lying in a hospital bed there dying of cancer. Kevin and his wife, Megan, have been part of our church for many years. Kevin served on our life safety team. And just a strong ox of a man. The cancer had ravaged his body. He had lost all kinds of weight. He was fighting for his life. They tried every treatment that they knew of to make him better and it just wasn't working. And I remember being there in that hospital room with Daniel. And Daniel, as Daniel does, if you know Pastor Daniel at all, you know he's a man that embodies this so well. And Daniel just slid right out there next to Kevin and Megan, kind of on the bed and got next to them and rubbed oil. Father, you know, anointed Kevin's forehead in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and claimed his life. And Lord, if there's anything you can do, raise him up off of his bed. And we're so emotional, you know, all of us together in that moment, the tenderness the cherishing of Kevin's life. And that was a Thursday. And two days later, Saturday morning, I get a call from Daniel. Hey, it looks like Kevin is in his last minutes here. Let's jump up in a car together and go see him. And by this time, he'd been moved to their house up in Monument. And so we jumped in the Jeep and we drove up, the two of us together to his house. And we went to the Cagle household and got in Kevin and Megan's bedroom. And there was a group of people that had been keeping vigil over Kevin. And I will, as long as I live, I will never forget this. I will never forget the way that Daniel slid right up one more time, slid right up onto Kevin's bed and got down next to him and started whispering in his ear, Kevin, Kevin, you've done a good job. Like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've taken care of your wife well. You've taken care of your children well. You've lived a righteous and an honorable life. You've set everybody up around you for success. You're free. You're free. You have permission to go home. You have permission to run into the arms of your maker. 
and we've got you from here, and we've got your family from here. Your kids are not going to be bereft. We're going to take good care of them. We're going to take good care of your wife. And as he's saying all of this, one more time, he's anointing Kevin's body, his forehead, with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and leaning over and kissing Kevin on the cheek and telling him, it's okay, man, you can go. And 45 minutes later, we left, and 45 minutes later, we got the phone call that Kevin had passed into the next life. Just like that. <laughs> I remember being so moved by that scene, Daniel with Kevin, and I remember thinking to myself, that right there. I might not know a lot about God and his ways, but that right there, that's the kingdom of God. That is the way that God calls us to be with each other. That he calls us to honor one another and love each other and to cherish the gift of God that we are all for each other. To cherish the divine image in each other. And so my message to you this morning, New Life East, is simple. Cherish each other. Because God is revealed in this. Husbands, cherish your wives. Wives, cherish your husbands. Children, cherish your parents. Parents, cherish your children. Brothers and sisters, cherish each other. Value each other. Honor each other. Friends, honor each other. Body of Christ, brothers and sisters, honor, cherish, receive each other. Because in this the tender compassion of our God is made manifest. And through this, the tender compassion of our God wins the world. Let's stand this morning. And now we make this our prayer. Say it with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son jesus christ have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so, Jesus, we receive in this moment, we receive your spirit afresh. Your spirit who makes us tender, makes us humble, and makes us compassionate. Your spirit who fills us with love. Your spirit who cleanses us to the innermost as though we have never failed. We receive your spirit afresh in this moment. And brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you can receive that, more, that this morning, let's give God praise. Amen. amen and amen. Let's respond with this song of worship, and then Pastor Colin will lead us to the table.
majesty with me?
friends, would you hold your communion elements in your hand? Just open them up here. Hold the bread in your hand and the cup in the other. Would you just ask the Lord to speak to you in this moment? And say, God, would you search my heart? Would you test all of my thoughts, Lord? See if there's any offensive way in me, Lord. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, you set the example for us. God, and how to love. Thank you for that. And we see that in the, in the proof of these elements in our hand, Lord, that you gave. You gave everything. You gave selflessly. You showed us what it means to serve by going to the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. Would you break it together? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Whenever you gather together, like we're gathered here today, would you do this in remembrance of me? Would you take and eat, church? And on the same night, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we do by partaking of this together. We acknowledge that Christ has died. Would you say this with me? Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Jesus, we take this in remembrance, Lord, and in longing for you to come again. Would you take and drink together? respond and worship together, church. you hold out your hands like this and receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. New Life East, God has been good to you. Go be good to everybody else, okay? And stick around and eat some food with us. The food trucks are out there. The Sasquatch cookies, if you're new, head over to Connect Central. We'd love to meet you there. And uh, go Chiefs. Okay, that's enough for me. All right. <laughs>